You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I believe that life is meant to be an adventure. And I believe that you believe that as well. And I know that Walter Mitty believed that. Walter Mitty, the uh, sometimes hero of uh, James Thurber's short story, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, was a man who believed that his life was destined for adventure, but who found that he was just stuck in the utterly banal and mundane things of life and just could not materialize it. But it's a fun read, and uh, we find in this story that he's going back and forth between the world in which he does realize adventure and the world in which he lives uh, with his wife in the rather plain circumstances of everyday life. Here's how the story begins. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased to pocket, to pocket, to pocket, to pocket, to pocket. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew bending to their various tasks in a huge, hurtling, eight-engine Navy hydroplane looked at each other and grinned. The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm? said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You were up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You were up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence. The roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying fading in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. You're tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. What Dr. Renshaw will not be able to help Walter Mitty with is this unremitting sense that life is meant for adventure. Walter Mitty has been forced, for better or for worse, to live with a kind of a dualism. With these two worlds simultaneously, the one of his secret life in which he actually lives with adventure and the life of his actual life. It's rather plain and ordinary. And I think whether you and I will be able to live in the life that Walter Mitty wants to live in uh, will depend upon, at least in the context of this text, a single solitary item, a small piece of broiled fish. The broiled fish signifies an awful lot in this text, and I want to show that to you. Would you open up your Bible to Luke 24, verses 36 through 43? So I believe this broiled fish is an invitation to the fullness of life's adventure. 
This here is the last of Jesus' tables. It speaks to us of life-changing community. Community that changes the lives of other people. People outside of it. At this table, Jesus offers a broiled fish. Would you stand, if you're able, and let's read together Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified, thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, would you pour out upon us a fresh measure of your spirit, that through the hearing and believing of your word, we might be constituted anew as the body of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A broiled fish and three implications. The first is this. If Jesus eats the broiled fish, then he has a body for us. The fish tells us, therefore, who Jesus is. It points to the reality of Jesus Christ's presence among us. It's evidence. Since the last meal that we discussed, which was the upper room, in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, a lot has happened. And now the full meaning of those words, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood shed for the new covenant in my blood, um, has fresh, full meaning. As Jesus has gone to the cross and he has given his life for the sins of all humanity. He's been crucified, he's been buried, and there are stories now of his tomb being vacant. There's no body there. And, and there are stories now of some who have seen Jesus risen from the dead. There was a couple on their way from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus, not far away, journeying along a road. And they were approached by a stranger who engaged them in conversation. And their hearts were burning as he did. But it wasn't until at the table that he, in their home, played the role of host and broke the bread. And they recognized this was the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And as soon as they recognized him, he disappeared. The risen Christ has appeared to Peter, to Cephas. Now... Peter has returned to the upper room in Jerusalem. These two from Emmaus have 
made their way quickly back to Jerusalem. And they are in this upper room and they are sharing stories with one another, these spectacular reports. And they have all come to believe that Jesus Christ has risen. And so they have a creedal affirmation. We see it just before the section we read in verse 34. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed. This is a creedal expression of faith. But it's not enough. It's not enough for the adventure of life. Because when Jesus actually next shows up in the room, the room is suddenly filled with a range of complicated and seemingly contradictory emotions. I mean, there's a sense of shock that just pervades the room. Fear, terror, wonder, joy. But underneath it all, disbelief and doubt. And I think Jesus, with a smile on his face, warmly says, Peace, peace be with you. But they're not feeling the peace right now. They're all a mess of uh, emotion. Jesus can see the concern on their faith, his face and he recognizes the disbelief. And I think those of us who are reading Luke's account have to wonder in what precisely do they disbelieve because it's not in the resurrection per se. They have already acknowledged that the Lord has risen indeed. Some of them have seen him. It's not that they doubt the resurrection. I don't think. I think it's that they doubt the nature of the resurrection. I think it's they wonder about the how of Jesus' presence with them. Luke tells us they were startled as though they had seen a ghost or a spirit, as many translations give us. This is the word for spirit. So they don't doubt that Jesus is alive because there he is. They can see him with their eyes. And yet the question is, is he physically alive? Does the spirit have a body? They seriously doubt so. After all, the door to this room is locked. And nobody remembers exactly how he came in. So Jesus says to them, look, it's I, it's myself, which is to say it's all of me. I'm here. I have bones. I, I have flesh. I am physically present. And yet the text insists they were disbelieving in verse 41. And so Jesus, ever resourceful, he gets an idea. He kind of puts his hands, I think, in his pockets, if robes had pockets. And he goes, hey, do you guys have anything to eat? I'm getting kind of hungry. It's a strange request for a moment like this. Do you have any food? And now, as they say yes, we realize that this is a table scene. Keeping with much of Luke's gospel, Jesus has caught these disciples in a meal, or having just finished a meal, there they are. And he says, do you have anything to eat? And they, for a moment, break their gaze from his and look down sheepishly at a table. And there are some remains. There is a broiled fish. Or a piece of one. And I think this is probably a very tense moment in the room because they must suspect that Jesus intends to eat the broiled fish. And you don't have to have seen Pirates of the Caribbean 
to know the problem that is emerging right here. That, that, that you've got a, an immaterial spirit who, 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 who is about to try to eat something that's very, very real and physical. Right? I mean, you would imagine that Jesus would probably reach for the tray if they were to lift it up, and his hand would go too far and it would go through the tray. Right? Just like he had apparently gone through the walls when he came in. And if he could somehow actually pick that physical piece of fish up and put it into his mouth, we, we all know that it must surely just drop to the floor and lie between his feet. What would there be to catch it of any substance? And so Jesus looks at them and he says, yeah, I think I'm going to have some food right about now. And he reaches out and he picks up a piece of broiled fish and he eats it. Now, why should this matter to us? I think it matters to us because it, it's important that we understand that Jesus has risen from the dead with a physical body that he's not just a spirit. And the fish gives evidence to this reality. The fish gives evidence to the presence of Jesus Christ in their, in their room right there at that time, physically present to them. To believe otherwise is to be a dualist. And we are all, in our heart of hearts, dualists. Dualism runs through Christian theology as it does through all the major worldviews and and philosophies of the world, both contemporary and ancients. And it's this idea that there is an untouchable world that's perfect and pure, and there is a corrupted, corrosive world that is material and present to us. There's a world of our aspiration and dreams where things go the way they should go, and then there is a world of our failures and compromise and capitulation to the status quo and that which is mundane. And, and it became the understanding of many believers in the early church that Jesus could not have possibly suffered, he could not have possibly, the Son of God, affiliated himself with this ordinary world. And, and so when Jesus presents himself to us as human, he only appears to be human. When Jesus presents himself to us as risen from the dead, he only appears to be risen. This is the philosophy called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. When Jesus eats the broiled fish, he denies docetism. He denies this idea that would develop in the second century, 100 years after Jesus, Pictures of Jesus walking on the sand but leaving no footprints because we know he's not really human. And Jesus says, no, watch me eat a piece of broiled fish and know that I have a body for you. The second implication is this. If Jesus eats the broiled fish, then we are his body for the world. Taking a step here. But not only does the fish tell us who Jesus is, the fish tells us who we are. Which begins to suggest something about the adventure you and I are meant to live. In verse 48, Jesus characterizes his now somewhat more believing disciples as witnesses. He says in verse 48, you are witnesses. Now this word, witnesses, is an important word for Luke in his gospel and very important for Luke in the book of Acts, which he also writes. This is for the second volume. 
fact, to say you are witnesses, I think it's a little bit of a product placement for volume two. You know, it has kind of a hook at the end of the, he says, if you like this, you're going to love the sequel. You know, the whole witness thing is going to be huge. And, and, and he's pointing, Jesus is pointing that reality right here at the end. You're witnesses. This has something to say about who we are in the world. In April, we are going to have the privilege of, of bringing on staff a theologian in residence from Princeton Theological Seminary. Daryl Guder. And Daryl Guder has a wonderful definition for witness. It's so simple and clear. Here's what he says. A witness is somebody who gives evidence on the basis of which other people make decisions. Isn't that really what a witness is? A witness is someone who gives evidence on the basis of which other people make decisions. So when Jesus says... Um, You all in this room, looking around the table, will be my witnesses. What he's saying is, you, in your corporate life together, shall give evidence upon which other people will make their decisions about me. About the availability of forgiveness to them. About the presence of God. In the world. You. You. Jesus takes his body elsewhere. It's seated at the right hand of the Father. But the scriptures come to speak of these people in that room. And we people in this room as his body. And I think it's as dangerous to be a docetic when we think of who Jesus is. As it is to be a docetic when we think about what the church is. We might think about Jesus as just a spirit with no body. And the broiled fish won't allow that. Likewise, we might be just as tempted to think about the church as just the spirit at work in the world with no body. It'd be to have a docetic view of the church. And I believe the broiled fish will not allow that either. Jesus says you are... Witnesses. Yes, he will send his Holy Spirit. But that Spirit must be embodied. That is his plan. At the end of uh, our, our section here, verse 49, Jesus says, You're witnesses, but not witnesses simply because you've seen something, is the way we oftentimes think of witnesses. He, he, he implies that they're not ready to be witnesses yet, even though they have seen really all that they need to see. He says, um, I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here, literally sit here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. See, heaven, that great eternal realm, is breaking in. The Spirit of God is breaking in to this body that you are becoming. My body. To be witnesses. You'll be clothed. What requires clothing but a body? A physical body. That's what we put clothing on. Jesus says the spirit will be the clothing on your physical presence that will make you witnesses. It's not that just that you're good people, as we kind of know otherwise, or that you do good things, because we've witnessed something different than that as well. 
but it's that you will be embodying the Spirit of God as you live life together. We've got to be careful when we think about the church as an invisible reality. Of course, it is an invisible reality in some sense. We just said it in the creed, didn't we? We believe in the communion of saints, which is a way of affirming that you could, you could in your mind's eye, visualize every person that Jesus ever saved from all time, every place. We are all one in him. We are the communion of saints. And nobody has ever beheld all of that at once but God. And that's the communion. We, we affirm that. That's the invisible church. But that's not the way we experience the church. And that's not the way the world experiences the church. What kind of a witness would be if we were an invisible witness? How helpful is that? No, we do well to speak with the scriptures of a visible embodied church, a church that could be described by its address in Rome, in Ephesus, in Philadelphia. It's a specific group of people at a certain time in a certain place who in their life together, their corporate life, give witness to the, the presence of the Spirit who become the embodiment of the mission of Jesus Christ for those communities. So Karl Barth, in his Dogmatics in Outline, says, by people assembling here and there in the Holy Spirit, there arises here and there a visible Christian congregation. It's best not to apply the idea of invisibility to the church. We're all inclined to slip away with that in the direction of a civilitas tas platonica. He means um, an ideal society. And we, we're not to think of ourselves as an ideal society by any stretch of the imagination. Or, or we'll slip away in the direction of some cloud cuckoo land in which the Christians are united inwardly and invisibly while the visible church is devalued. In the Apostles' Creed, it's not an invisible structure which is intended, but a quite visible coming together, which originates with the twelve apostles. The first congregation, these twelve, was a visible group, which caused a visible public uproar. If the church has not this visibility, then it is not the church. Credo ecclesiam, I believe in the church, means that I believe that here, at this place, in this visible assembly, the work of the Holy Spirit takes place. The fish was evidence that Jesus was embodied. And so our embodiment is evidence that Jesus is present in the world. Three, if Jesus eats the broiled fish, then our adventure is the mission of this community. And there is no greater adventure than to participate in the adventure of Jesus Christ. It's the same adventure he lived. He's given it to us in his body, and we live it for his glory in service to other people. And the fish is simply the invitation to participate. How do we experience this adventure? I, I want to be very practical, because I'm oftentimes not. Um, three things. First of all, you just got to find some people to do it with. You have to find that time and place and people who will be physically available to you to receive your gifts and to be called into ministry by you. You need people. You can think about your small group in, in this way. 
as a body, a little miniature body within the body where the, 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 the physical witness to Jesus Christ is most concentrated because you are engaged in it particularly and personally, actively, not passively. No one's doing it on your behalf. You're doing it with others. You could think about your small group as a base camp. As you gather each week and you hear the challenges that each member shares as they look to their calling in the week ahead, and you can pray for each other. Base camp, a place to be refueled and then sent out. Or you could see your small group as a summit team, a group that's going together to the summit. We're on this adventure together. We're going to serve together. We're going to do it together. So you've got to find some people to do it with, and B, uh, you've got to go find some needs to do it for. Jesus is engaged in meeting needs, and his body, his community, his church, his people will be engaged in meeting those same needs all around them. So your small group functions then as a kingdom scout, as together you become aware of the people around you. God's put you into proximity of people and opportunities uh, that Jesus wants to address. You've got to find some people to do it with. You've got to find some needs to do it for. And then finally, you've got to let the Spirit of Jesus do His work. So you might see your small group as a sacred organism. Do not be confused. Although the members of your community may be your friends, that is not why you are together. It's great that you like each other if you do. What matters is the presence of the Spirit in your midst. And the capacity that you have to love each other. And to let your group be a source of love for the people around you. Some examples of that that have been so rich in the life of our church, UPC. Just a few stories to share. In the 1940s, a gentleman named Lindsay McClenney and Cap Stabbard. Lindsay was a surgeon and Cap was a contractor. Had a crazy idea. It's coming out of uh, World War II. They said... We noticed that there are a lot of isolated communities along the Pacific uh, Rim here in the Canadian and Alaskan coastline. And uh, why don't we go and minister to their medical needs and to their spiritual needs? So they went out and they bought a decommissioned World War II minesweeper. I think it was like 130 feet long. They brought it back to UPC and said, what are we going to do with this? And they started to strip the thing down. They engaged some of our communities, ambassadors, that was a group of young adults at that time, much like Convergence is today. And the Sky Masters, a group of older adults. And these two communities dug in uh, on this boat, which they named uh, the Willis, what is it? Willis Shank, yeah, the Willis Shank. And everybody did whatever they could do, whether it was scraping or painting, uh, polishing, and had a bunch of rags to clean this thing down, and then... People were jarring vegetables and fruit, provisions, medical supplies for the missions that this would, ship would take over the years, up and down, as it came back to Seattle and went back up and ministered to people. This was the mission of Jesus Christ embodied in this community. Or another example, earlier than that, in the 1920s, UPC had a, a rich core of, of, of women in ministry, and they called themselves the Ladies' Aid and this was a community that met at the church to provide meals for the church and then for people outside the church as well. And it began to grow. By the end of the decade, the 1920s, these ladies' aides were meeting in what they called circles. They'd moved beyond the church and its walls into the neighborhoods of Seattle. And there were eight circles. Ladies' aid, there was Central, University, Latona, Roosevelt, Laurelhurst, 
And it was these circles, substantially, that got the church and our neighborhoods through the Great Depression. As these women provided meals and clothing and quilts for people who simply did not have some basic necessities. What a witness to the presence of Jesus. This was evidence on the basis of which their neighbors could make a decision about Jesus Christ. The list could go on and on in terms of the communities that have given rise to witness to Jesus in service. Shoulder to shoulder, global health, build up the house, side by side, gospel choir, union, scope, as we're engaged with the Ethiopians and HIV. Uh, this Lent in particular. Be praying for what God would do as he moves us out into the neighborhoods of Seattle and asks us to love. Think about whose lives might be touched by this spiritual witness to Jesus through his body. I remember I was down in Manaus, Brazil, right in the heart of the Amazon a few years ago. And I, I met some Christians who had a church that was one of the most dynamic churches I've known called Manaus Presbyterian Church. And you came to the church, not first to the sanctuary. In fact, many of the people didn't even know for a long time that they had worship services on Sunday. You came to the church because it came to you through its small groups. A group of people who cared about you and reached out to you. I asked about these small groups and they said, yeah, one of the things we do is we have this thing called a chart of blessing. It's just a big poster and it says in Portuguese, chart of blessing at the top and then there are a bunch of just lines and people would put on the poster the names of their friends and relatives and co-workers and they would pray that God would bless them. That was all it was. But then their hearts would follow those prayers out into service and relationship with those people. And they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they'd come back in and they'd see this chart of blessing. And I said, well, you'd, you'd, you'd hide the chart when they came into the group, right? When you put it away. And they looked at me like I was some bizarre foreigner, which I was. And uh, they said, why would we do that? The reaction that we get when people come in and realize we've been praying for them for six months is joy. Tears of joy. Because it reminds them that it's not our care that mattered. It was the care of their Savior, Jesus Christ, through us that made the difference. And they're the first ones that they want to put their family and friends' names up on that so that we could all pray for them next. The best that Walter Mitty can do is pretend to be standing in front of a, a firing squad because he cannot resolve the dualism. He cannot get the world of his dreams into the world of his actual life. And he stands there smoking a cigarette. His wife is filling some prescription behind the wall inside. So that's a sad commentary. Thank God it's fiction. Because the truth of our lives and the reality is that Jesus Christ calls these followers from this table into the adventure of a lifetime. Jesus Christ calls those of us who are in this room right now into the adventure of a lifetime. It'll be the story of the book of Acts. Through all of these tables in Luke, Jesus has been calling forth his community. And now he's going to deploy it in ministry. And we're going to see that these are the people, even their opponents describe as those who turn the world upside down. We could agree with Teresa of Avila, who wrote that Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ looks out on a hurting world. Yours are the feet with which he goes about doing good. Good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless now. Let's pray. Jesus, we offer you 
our eyes and our feet and our hands that you might bless this city and indeed all of creation just as you see fit through our shared life together. You have told us that we are your witnesses, we are your body, you have sent forth your spirit that you might be present to your creation through us. What an amazing privilege that is. What could be more important? Lord, now empower us for that. Give us courage for that. Give us your love for that. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.